How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. This is Sam Fullwood. I am a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. I'm filling in this afternoon for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to call in, if you want to comment, if you want to join us in our conversation, you can reach us at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We're going to be on for a couple of hours. We're going to talk about a lot of provocative things. We're going to have some fun. And I hope, I hope that we'll get to learn a little bit about something that we didn't know already. I hope I'll learn something. Um, I'm pretty sure I will, given that this is the first time I've done the Leslie Marshall Show from this side of the microphone. So I'm learning as we go along, okay? Uh, our first guest today is one of my colleagues, Leslie Gibbs, who's a sports reporter with Think Progress. We're going to spend a few minutes talking about uh, Muhammad Ali, who tragically passed away over the weekend, last uh, Friday night, I think it was, uh, at age 79, um, after a illustrious career. Muhammad Ali, probably best known as the Louisville Lip and the greatest, um, some people would say the greatest of all time. Does that refer to boxing or does that refer to athletics? I'm going to ask Leslie that question. What, what was he the greatest at? Uh, Leslie's work has uh, appeared in a number of sports publications, Sports on Earth, Bleacher Report, Vice Sports, USA Today, Tennis Magazine, Tennis.com. Welcome. Thank Welcome. You, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I, I think I called you Leslie. It's Lindsay. It's That's Lindsay all right. Gibbs. It's a Leslie Marshall show, so <laughs> I, I can be Leslie for today if you'd like. Um, I, we were saying just before we went on the air, Muhammad Ali is the, is the only celebrity that I have any uh, true affection for, any true real respect for. Partly because I sort of came of age along with uh, with Muhammad Ali. I can remember, he's probably the first athlete that I ever even knew anything about. Uh, and so I sort of have come along and traced his career uh, sort of as I grew up, from, from childhood to adolescence and even into early uh, adulthood. Um, tell me about your remembrance uh, of Muhammad Ali. Well, I'll be honest. Um, I'm in my late 20s now, and my first memory was him lighting that torch uh, at the 96 Olympics. I remember watching it with my mother, and she was so emotional. And I didn't, of course, understand the full significance of How that moment at the time. I was 10, so I didn't understand the full significance of the moment at the time, but I knew this was... Uh, 
a big deal. You're making me se. feel old. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's certainly not my intention, but um, but yeah, but you know, and throughout the years, of course, as a I've just grown up in today's society, and he's such. I mean, he's probably the most famous person <laughs> there are a lot of people worldwide and um I've then begun reporting on the intersection of sports and culture i've read so much about his history and it's i mean i'm really interested in in what it would be like to grow up with that because it's not like what anybody else is doing the stances he's taking how open he is about politics and religion and race in even more divisive times, obviously, than today. I mean, it's it's beyond what you what we're used to or comfortable seeing athletes doing then or now. When you say you you've sort of tracked sports and culture, what does that mean? Is sports culture? Are sports culture? I think sports are culture, absolutely. But you know, there there are different types of sports reporting you can do. You know, there's the uh, the blow by blow per se, if you're talking about boxing or football, the downs, you know, the the gamers, the talking about the actual game itself on the field. But obviously, sports don't end on the field because these people become larger than life. They become, um, you know, it, it, it's about a lot more than just the plays on the field. And so I think, I mean, nobody epitomizes that more than Ali. Muhammad Ali beat uh, Sonny Liston to um and really was that probably was the first fight that shocked the world right um i was in the second grade and i remember very clearly in those days people didn't care too much for then known cassius clay right because he was so brash because he talked all the time uh and people sort of felt that athletes were to be sort of almost seen but not heard they were to be performers but not to have opinions, not to uh, personify anything other than what they had on the field or, or in the ring. And I can distinctly recall uh, most of my, my classmates, playmates, friends saying that, oh, Sonny Liston's gonna, just going to kill him because he's, he's, Sonny Liston was, was this brutal, uh, terrible boxer. And, and here you had this pretty boy that was you know, better known for winning the Olympics, mm-hmm. and no one really thought that he was ready and prepared for that. So when he did win, it did come as a, a tremendous, tremendous shock to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it it kind of launched him into this this other stratosphere of celebrity. I think what's interesting is he was such, you know, very few people who are as beloved as he is are that open about their own greatness. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We kind of... Uh, <laughs> well, we don't like people who know and acknowledge that they right. are great. We, we, we fetishize this humility, right? We want everyone to be super humble, right? It's it's better if you don't know how great you are, right? But he just, he said, no, that's ridiculous. I am the greatest. And he said he was, you know, I love the line, you know, he said he was the greatest before he knew he was the greatest. He kind of talked it into fruition because obviously in boxing, you have to self-promote, you know, you have to... You, you have to talk first and then you're going to get it behind, you know, you're going to be able to back it up. But I think it's the way that it was so genuine that he, he was the greatest. So nobody minded him calling himself the greatest. Ali did a number of things that were memorable. Let's get the, let's get the sports stuff out because right. I really want to talk about something other okay. than sports. Great. Um, but he he was one of the first, I think the first uh, boxer to win the heavyweight crown back uh Three times, right? Uh, which was kind of an, a, a remarkable feat. 
uh, he was stripped of the title uh, after he refused to serve in, in um, the Vietnam War, refused to enlist in the Army. Uh, and he sat out because of his convictions of, because of that for three years at the point when he was the greatest. Right. I mean, what what could have been or should have been the prime of his career? You know, I mean, these aren't three years that were insignificant in kind of his journey. In- is, is there any other athlete that has done a comparable thing no. where they where they did not perform? Um, I think you've seen athletes take stands, but nothing, nothing to that to that level. Absolutely not. Um, and of course, it was the stakes were a lot higher. A lot of times when you see athletes make, you know, take stands, you're talking about, um, you know, you know, social issues, but he was trying not to go to war. So it was um, a bigger, you know, a very, a much more immediate danger that we're talking about. And he didn't sit out out of will. I mean, of course, he could have changed his stance, but he was banned from the sport because he was uh, arrested and they, they tried to send him to prison for five years, but he kept appealing and eventually went to the Supreme Court. And even the Supreme Court said, I think they was it was unanimous, eight to nothing. Um, one of the judges recused himself and they said, yeah, you have very good reasons for not doing this. You As should a conscientious objector. Yeah, you're a conscientious objector. Now, he became a conscientious objector because of his religion. Right. He joined the, the Nation of Islam, which uh, in the 60s was to most Americans – uh, a very scary sect. Right. Uh, it was a black separatist sect that that portrayed the, uh, or at least espoused the teachings of um, uh, the Honorable Minister Elijah Muhammad, who had, you know, gone on record and, and was was very open in saying that all whites were devils. And so by implication, it sort of made him seem a, a very scary person. Absolutely. I mean, it's it was a very uh, strong stance to take. It was a very strong move. You know, he changed his name and said, Cassius Clay is my slave name. I don't want that anymore. And all of a sudden, you have the greatest boxer, you know, in the world, one of the most famous athletes, um, saying that he wants segre- segregation, but the opposite, you know, the opposite way. If you want to join our conversation, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653. Four seven five four three. That's eight 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 six five three seven five four three. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more of this conversation with my guest Lindsey Gibbs. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Eight 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 six Leslie. It's Sam Fullwood at the Center for American Progress, filling in for the Leslie Marshall Show. My guest is Lindsay Gibbs, a sports reporter with Think Progress. Lindsay is the author of the uh, tennis novel called Titanic, the tennis story. 
I'm, I'm, I apologize. I'm not familiar with it. I got to know a little bit about that. How does Titanic and tennis go together? <laughs> well, actually, there were two Hall of Fame tennis players who were on the Titanic, and uh, they met on board the rescue ship. They both survived. They met on board the rescue ship Carpathia. Did they get up and have a love thing? Uh, <laughs> they didn't know each other beforehand, um, and they met on board the rescue ship, the Carpathia, and they played each other in the U.S. Open quarterfinals two years later. So it's, a, wow. it's actually it's based on uh, that remarkable true story. Wow. Wow. Well, that sounds like something worth uh, talking about on another occasion. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to to Muhammad Ali. And we, when we just before the break, we were talking about how he had converted to the Nation of Islam, which, you know, in those days, it was such a scary sect. Um, and I think that contributed to the dislike that lots and lots of sports reporters had toward uh, Cassius Clay now uh, Muhammad Ali. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'm sure it did. I think, you know, listening, especially over the past few days for a lot of sports reporters talking about it, saying that it was, you know, they 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 thought they were rather liberal, but this was something that scared the liberals as well. You know, it didn't matter um, because it was basically talk promoting um, segregation, you know, complete segregation and not letting, you know, wanting to stay completely separate from all, from the whites. And, of course, uh, in a white-dominated society. that was a ter- What's more, the, the Nation of Islam uh, scared people because there was always this hint of violence that was associated right. with them. And I think that a lot of a lot of whites, and uh, truth be told, a lot of uh, African Americans in that day and at that time, uh, you're thinking, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, they were quite afraid of what this religious group might, might do. Right. And I mean, even Malcolm X had, you know, was was one of the biggest names in it. And he eventually started to realize that this was this was too extreme, that what, you know, what he related to more was the the more traditional form of Islam that we know today. The reason that I have always been a big uh, Muhammad Ali fan is that when you talk about uh, any human being uh, and over the course of their life, you realize just how human people can be. And one of the things that I think makes us human is the capacity to change. Right. And the way in which Muhammad Ali's life over the 70, 79 years, 70 years, some years that he lived, um, he changed. Right. And the public perception of him changed. Right. Uh, and it all sort of changed well after he came back into boxing. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah. I mean, he, like you said, he, um, you know, in 64 was when he converted to the Nation of Islam. And at that time, it was one of the biggest regrets. He went to Africa and he refused to see Malcolm X um, because at that time, Malcolm X was stepping away from the Nation of Islam, which was the sect that Muhammad Ali was in at the time, and, you know, moving more towards the the more traditional Islam that we know today, I think the Sunni Islam, and um, and Ali refused to, to see him, and he says today that that's one of the great regrets of his life, or yeah. was one of the great regrets of his life, because, of course, Malcolm X was assassinated, you know, died soon thereafter. Um, but, so from 67 to, to 1970, Ali didn't box at all, as we were talking before. He said he was not going to... Um, he was not going to fight in Vietnam because of his religion, and the boxing um, authorities stripped him of all abilities. He was, at that time, the world champion. And when he came back, you know, he was able to regain his, his greatness fairly quickly. And... 
and that's when I think the the mythology really started to even take on a life of its own because he kind of overcame that part of his career and he kept winning. He won the title two more times, I believe, that's after right, that. That's right. And um, and throughout the years, really started to to grow as a human being. He definitely softened his ideas about um, segregationists, and he was always so open and honest about what he believed. And I think that's what people responded to because he would admit when he was wrong or when he had evolved, he was open about the changes that he went through and why he was changing what he went through. On a personal note, I had an opportunity to, to actually meet Muhammad. Ali. Wow. Um, my, it must've been my sophomore year in college. I went to the university of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and Ali came to speak. One of my classmates was in the Nation of Islam, and her father was a close friend of Muhammad Ali's, and she was able to persuade him to come uh, and give a lecture uh, on campus in, in Carmichael Auditorium, which was much more known for hosting basketball games, and people <laughs> cheered there. And Ali came and spoke, and people cheered him. The, the cheers were as loud as any basketball game I'd ever been to. Um, and I, I distinctly remember I was a student um, newspaper uh, uh, photographer at that time, and I had access to get close enough to him. His book had just come out called The Greatest, and um, he was selling the book. And there was a, 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 a bookstore that was selling it. I had an opportunity to go to the bookstore, take pictures of him, and to get close enough to get an autograph and to shake his hand. And the one thing that I remember the most about that encounter with him was for all of his physical prowess, he had the softest hands of any human being, any man that I had ever touched. <laughs> and uh, that always struck me because I expected him to have really he had hard, huge hands, yeah. but they were just as soft as you could imagine. That's amazing. And it kind of goes towards what people say about him, how gentle he, you know, how he was this, this boxer. But in, but in re real life, he was, he was a gentle soul. Over time, uh, his, his fame and his celebrity grew. He retired in 1981. Uh, and at that point, he he really did take off as a sort of a beloved figure international. Well, even before then, he was he was uh, probably the best known uh, single human being on the planet. Uh, mm -hmm. He could go anywhere and be mobbed uh, by adoring fans, whether it was on the continent of Africa or Asia or anywhere through the the Carolina the um, the uh, Americas. He was he was this very very beloved well-known personality. At one point, I think he said he was more popular than anyone else on the planet. And it's true. I think it's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, I think it was 84 where he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And, um, and you know, that disease, it comes from, likely came from the boxing because it's, it's a offshoot of head trauma. And I think he estimated he took 29,000 hits to the head over his career. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and unfortunately, you know, and then, you know, the, he was... So different later in his life because of because of the disease, but he never hid away. He stayed in the public eye until he literally couldn't anymore. I think that's the definition of grace, of yeah. being able to let people see how vulnerable you are, particularly someone who is as powerful and as strong as, as Muhammad Ali once was. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Lindsay. Uh, if you want to hear more from Lindsay, you can reach her at Twitter at uh, L-I-N-Z Sports. L-I-N-Z-S-P-O-R-T-S. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been fun talking to you. Yes, this is great.
to the Leslie Marshall Show, and I'm so happy to have my colleague and friend, Melissa Botek, who is the Vice President of the Poverty and Prosperity Program at the American Progress Action Fund. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you came in. Uh, today, we had a little bit of news, and so I want to I talk a little bit about the news and then uh, talk about your work uh, a little bit more in depth. But the two go together. Yep. Uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan came out with his long-awaited, actually uh, sort of a reprise, because he's done this before, uh, of his rollout, of his his first rollout of his plans for the new Congress. And he was talking about how to fight poverty, which is a big deal for him. What do you make of his plan? Tell us about what his plan says and, and what you make of it. So the first thing to note, I think, is that this plan is coming on the heels of a budget several weeks ago, which got about 60 percent of its cuts from low and moderate income Americans while protecting tax breaks for millionaires and corporations. So let's set up that little bit of context first before we actually talk about the plan, because I don't think it can be divorced from that budget. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a desire on the part of House Republicans to have them be two separate things. But is there any clearer statement of your priorities than what you put in your budgets? In terms of the plan itself, unfortunately... Um, well, hold on. Before we go, let, let's, let's go a little bit deeper on the budget then. Um, why would they put the budget out before they put out the plan? Well, typically Congress puts out their budget blueprints in the spring, and they use that to uh, write the bills that, um, that, they, that they authorize the spending on for right. all the various different government programs. And so this particular budget guts nutrition assistance. It would increase the ranks of the uninsured, and it would put such a low cap on the core functions of government, everything from infrastructure to housing, um, that it would, just, it would devastate um, struggling families, low- and moderate-income families, while protecting those who are already comfortable. Right. Okay. So we got that that straightened out. That's the baseline on which we're going to build. Right. Okay. So then on the heels of that comes this poverty blueprint. Um, And unfortunately, it is the same old pig and better lipstick. (laughs) (laughs) So the lipstick is brighter, it's pinker, it's nicer, but it's the same pig. Um, And we're talking about a proposal that wraps up very familiar proposals such as block granting and sending core vital tools to fight poverty to the states with flat funding um, and fancy language about consolidating and streamlining and empowering local communities. But if you look past the rhetoric, the reality of the policies is the same old, same old. Was this a surprise? No. (laughs) I wish I could say it were. It was not a surprise. It was not a surprise. Um, And, you know, I think that... um, I, I think that after you know months and months of actually years really of rhetoric um, I, and, and seeing the same old budgets and seeing the same old policies wrapped up in various different iterations of language, um, my ability to be surprised has vanished. If that's the case, and I was having this conversation with some colleagues earlier in the day, uh, Speaker Ryan has been among the uh, how shall I say it proponents of dealing with poverty in his poverty in his in his party, mm-hmm. unlike most of them who sort of ignore that there is even a, a, a issue with poverty in the country. But yet the Republicans have never issued 
any leg or it produced any legislation to do any of the things that that Ryan has talked about. I mean, that's a really key point because this isn't, uh, you know, just a, a think tank putting out a thought piece. This is the Speaker of the House. If he wants to draft these ideas into legislation and pass them and have a debate, he is within his powers to do that. But instead, we sort of get blueprint and blueprint after blueprint, and we're not actually seeing real action. Do you anticipate, so you weren't surprised by this blueprint, do you anticipate seeing any of this become uh, proposed legislation? Um, I mean, there's there's a possibility that some of the what's going on right now with child nutrition, where in the blueprint, there's actually a proposal to allow some states to block grant school lunch, which is code for take meals away from the trays of low income school children. Um, so there's a proposal in that uh, in the blueprint release that they do that in the child nutrition bill um, that's currently under consideration in the House would do just that. So there are specific elements of it that you're seeing move, but um, not the broader package. I would also note that just as important as what is in this plan is what is not in this plan. So despite all this language about a job is the best pathway out of poverty, which progressives agree with, there's nothing in this plan that would create jobs, that would raise wages, that would address the barriers to work that people face like childcare, unpredictable schedules, lack of paid sick days so that if you get a call from the school nurse, you could risk losing your job. That's absent from the plan. So I think just as important as what's in it, which people are dissecting to the nth degree, is what's not in it. We are sitting uh, not that far from the Capitol and not that far from the White House, so it's kind of hard to divorce anything that happens in the news in Washington from politics. Is this essentially then a political document rather than a practical blueprint for something that, that they want to produce? I think, I mean, Speaker Ryan's been pretty clear about that on the on that point, that he doesn't expect to see any of this actually signed into legislation this year. And so it's more putting at ideas for 2017 that he hopes under a Trump presidency would have a chance of becoming law. What do you think about that? <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> um, well, I, uh, you know, I, it's been interesting to see the, the back and forth today uh, between Trump and Ryan. Um, on and, and on, both on the specific policies, uh, you know, Trump hasn't been particularly uh, clear on what he believes. He, sa he said at one point he wanted to abolish the minimum wage, that wages were too high. Um, and at other points, he said, um, you know, oh, we need to create jobs. So he hasn't really been super specific on what his policies would be, besides the fact that he's a ta tax plan that would um, give, you know, millions of dollars to people who are already pretty wealthy. And then you have Ryan, who's sort of trying to lay out this blueprint that would inform the Republican platform. So I think that there's definitely a political connection and a political purpose behind this document. I want to encourage anyone who's listening to to give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Uh, if you have any questions for my guest, Melissa Botek, about uh, the Paul Ryan uh, poverty plan, uh, about uh, poverty in general in the United States, give us a call, 888-6-LESLIE, uh, 888-653-7543. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit, if we can, uh, and talk about a new report that, that your team has just put out, talking about some ideas. You have a blueprint for, um, for fighting poverty. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Right. So I think it's important not just to critique Speaker Ryan and House Republicans, but to be laying out credible progressive alternatives for what would actually cut poverty and inequality. And to that end, yesterday, Center for American Progress released a major progressive blueprint on how to do just that. And we walk through five different pillars, uh, creating good jobs, valuing all families, uh, basic living standards, removing barriers to opportunity, and investing in human capital. So what does that mean policy-wise? It means raising the minimum wage, which right now is a poverty wage and has been stuck at $7.25 an hour for six years. That means somebody who's working full-time at the minimum wage is thousands of dollars below our federal poverty But isn't line. the minimum wage supposed to be for teenagers who are trying to get their foot in the door to working and not for something that someone would try to raise a family on? No. Many minimum wage workers are raising children, are adults who this is their primary source of income. Um, and I think that, the, you know, people try to paint it as, oh, this is just kids flipping burgers after school, when in reality, it's set a wage floor that is keeping many, many working families trapped in poverty. And so you propose raising it to... $12 an hour, but also there's movements across the country in higher-cost states and cities that would get it closer to 15 And I think it's a credit to the workers and to uh, the people who have been brave enough to sort of walk off the job and to go on strike that we're seeing this issue really rise to the center of the national agenda. So we talk about raising the minimum wage. We talk about equal pay. We talk about uh, labor standards such as fair schedules so you don't get a call you know, a day before saying you got to come in when all of a sudden it throws your life into havoc for child care and transportation purposes or that you show up on the job and are sent home without pay because, hey, it wasn't that busy. You know, these unpredictable schedules can throw people's lives into havoc, paid sick days. We talk about uh, how do you invest in kids and families. We propose a young child tax credit because zero to three is the time in kids' lives where income matters the most for their long-term outcomes and their brain development. It also happens to be the time when parents' incomes tend to be lowest. Uh, they're early on in their careers. There's very high costs associated with young kids. And so we recommend a investment that would dramatically reduce child poverty uh, by investing in a young child tax credit. We talk about criminal justice and immigration, something that is not on the plate um, in Speaker Ryan's plan, um, as, as, as forces that can separate families um, and exacerbate poverty and inequality. And we talk about solutions to ensure that people with criminal records have a fair chance um, and that uh, families can stay together and we have comprehensive immigration reform. So it's a really comprehensive blueprint. I, I want to go a little deep on a couple of those points. Uh, equal pay. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of talk about that being a political issue in in the fall. Um, you mentioned that as one of the one of your one of your key points. We haven't heard enough about equal pay. Right. Why and will we? And how do we get people to pay attention to that? What does equal pay do? So I think there's a, a couple ways you achieve equal pay. One is the Paycheck Fairness Act, which arms people with the tools and the information to enforce their rights, et cetera. But it's also policies that enable you know women to uh, have full be full participants in the labor market. So that's things like paid family leave, affordable quality child care, paid sick leave, fair schedules. Um, if we were to uh, have equal pay in this country, we would cut poverty for working women and their families in half. Just in half. In half equal pay for women. Um, and so I think that it's it's often an overlooked step in the fight against poverty. Yeah, yeah. Why haven't we heard more about this? 
I think we're beginning to hear more about it. You know, I think on the on the campaign trail and it, there's been a lot of organizing in recent years by advocates, by uh, by workers across the country to put this issue on the agenda. I've heard, actually heard more about equal pay this election cycle than I've ever heard. The other point I wanted to go a little bit deeper in was was your comment about criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think people see that as a part of uh, generally see that as a part of what makes people poor. Oh, it's a, there's a very intimate connection between poverty and, and the criminal justice system, uh, both, you know, in the sense that, you know, poor people and people of color are more likely to be targeted for uh, for involvement in the criminal justice system. But also once somebody has emerged from the criminal justice system, the barriers that we throw up in their way to try and start over everything from housing to getting a job to getting into college are sometimes insurmountable. And so one of the proposals that we've put forward at CAP, um, my colleague Rebecca Vallis had a, with um, Community Legal Services in Philadelphia had a report called One Strike and You're Out. And it walks through a comprehensive agenda uh, to remove barriers for people with criminal records. One specific policy is something called a clean slate. Clean slate. Which means that after a set number of years, if you have a low-level nonviolent offense, that record would be automatically sealed rather than having you need to petition the court. Uh, which can you know take up tons of time and resources and legal fees in trying to get that record sealed, uh, where this would be automatically after a set period of time, you'd have your record sealed. We have seen a, a federal ban the box uh, proposal, um, and some municipalities have done this. Yes, yeah, so and Pennsylvania actually just introduced legislation on clean slate. So I think you're really actually, this is one area where you're seeing very positive and in many cases bipartisan momentum. We're talking with Melissa Botek uh, with the uh, to Prosper- Prosperity to Poverty Program uh, at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. <laughs> if you want to join our conversation, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Um, this is, poverty is, has always been with us. People seem to think that this is something that is permanent. I don't know if that's uh, uh, true. Do you do you think it is it's a permanent fixture given the the economic structure of our society? I mean, I think that poverty is a policy choice that we make. Um, you know, poverty is not inevitable. It's not intractable. It's the direct results of priorities and choices that we've made as a society to concentrate wealth and income in the hands of people at the very top. Um, and you know flat wages and uh, and for everybody else. And so I think that the that's the bad news. The good news is that the choices that we make can be different. Um, and so that's why we released this blueprint on poverty. I think one of the things also that is important to note is that we have made progress because when you feel like, you know, nothing's yeah. changed, nothing works, it can be very demobilizing. But actually, with the investments we've made in everything from Social Security to tax credits for working families to nutrition assistance, we've cut poverty by over 40 percent since 1967. The safety net is working. Uh, But what we need to do is not only strengthen it, but to make sure that the labor market is also working so that people can have higher wages and better jobs. There was a fact in your report that jumped out at me, uh, a, a rather negative fact, that one in three Americans, that's more than 105 million people, live in poverty or are threatened by poverty. Mm-hmm. That's, that is, that's a staggering, staggering statistic. I know. So the poverty line in this country is really, it's, it's so low that I don't think anybody actually believes that if you were to live at around $23,000 a year, you could reasonably meet all of your expenses. That's for a family of four is the poverty line. Uh, so a lot of people use twice the poverty line as a more 
realistic gauge of what you would actually need to get by. A lot of people are confused by that that statement, poverty line. For for people who really don't know, mm-hmm. what are you talking about when you say the poverty line? What is what? Where is the poverty line, or what is that? So the poverty line, it's 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 the income amount below which. The government says if your income for this family size falls below this amount, then you're considered poor in the statistical book that, you know, that they publish every year. Um, And the methodology hasn't changed since the 1960s. It was based on a 1955 food basket multiplied by three because at that time food was one third the cost of the average family's budget. Since that time, food's become about one-seventh of the average family budgets, and issues like child care, exploding health costs, et cetera, have, uh, have, have made that line more and more obsolete. And so when you're looking at a broad measure of economic insecurity and the mer- a number of Americans whose incomes fall below that measure, it's actually closer to one in three people who are one paycheck, one broken bone, one broken down car away from being you know, in poverty. Does it matter who our leaders are in terms of making it easy to combat poverty? Yes. Elections matter. Policies matter. Um, And I think that's why it's so important that we're having this debate right now. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thanks for having me. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Welcome back to the second hour of the Leslie Marshall Show, my first time here hosting, and it's been a really great time for me. I'm Sam Fullwood at the Center for American Progress, and, you know, sometimes you you just have very, very good luck when things happen that you don't know that they're going to happen, and uh, as that old uh, guy used to say on the television show, The A-Team, I love it when a plan comes together. Uh, A news just came through that says that Republican Senator Mark Kirk said today that Donald Trump does not have the temperament to hold the job of president, saying he cannot and will not support the presumptive GOP presidential nominee. My guest is uh, Michael Fontroy, who has looked at the relationship between Republican candidates and uh, Republican uh, politics and the black vote. And so I've, the two came together so neatly. Right at the moment he was walking in the door, I learned about this. And so I want to ask, uh, I'm going to put, put Michael on the spot right off the bat. What do you make of, uh, of Mark Kirk's announcement about this? Well, two things. One, he is in a very difficult political position. He happens to be one of the handful of Republican senators running for re-election in a hotly contested state when the top of the ticket is going to be a mess. All right, so that's part of it. He's beginning to separate himself. And I don't know if you caught earlier, late last week, early this week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is on a tour supporting his book. And if you listen to him carefully, he's beginning to allow and create some space for those people who are running around the country and need to sort of decouple themselves from the top of the ticket. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is we know now that the Republican Party is about to nominate a candidate who is toxic to not just African-American voters, but also to Latino voters around the country. 
And that just makes it almost impossible for people like Mark Kirk to win. So what do you say? Well, so what do you do? If you're, running for re- if you're not running for re-election, you can just choose to be silent and just go about your business. But if you're running for re-election, you can't go to a community stop and not expect to be asked about this. So at some point, the pressure was going to put him into a position where he either had to say, yes, I'm for Trump, or no, I'm not for Trump. And he's at a point now where he cannot win re-election if he continues to hold Trump's hand through November. My guest is uh, Michael Fontroy. He is an associate professor of political science, associate chair, and graduate program director at Howard University, where he teaches courses in African-American political behavior, American political parties, interest groups, and national government. Uh, We were talking earlier about uh, Republicans and uh, the African-American. He has written a book, a uh, 2008 book, Republicans and the Black Vote, which sort of analyzes the historical relationship between African-Americans and the GOP. Um, Trump is uh, has made sort of a lot of news on the racial front. Clearly, it's not helpful with uh, him being able to attract uh, African-American voters, although he has said he is going to win both the Latino vote and the votes of the blacks. Um, <laughs> do you think that that's at all likelihood? If by winning you say get six or seven percent of the black vote or Latino vote, then yes, he's going to win the black vote. But if you're actually talking about a, a systemically or or structurally significant number that is above and beyond historical norms for a recent Republican candidate, the answer is absolutely not. He he has done more to inflame African-Americans, Latinos around the country than any other candidate in recent memory. And while I wasn't around during the Goldwater campaign, I suspect it's it's difficult to, to create a scenario in which he has been less inflammatory than Goldwater. We can we can quibble a little bit about sort of dimensions of it all. But he has done a significant bit of damage, not just to his own candidacy. But to the party going forward, you can't inflame the two largest sort of minority groups in the country and expect the party to be so attractive two, two to minority voters. The largest and growing, yes. or, or, or at least within the case of the Latinos, Absolutely. growing. You raised a, a, a point a minute ago and invoked the name of Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, in his going around, has talked about the Goldwater effect. Yes. And they're worried. And so it does sort of play into what Kirk is talking about because – Maybe the Republicans are sacrificing the top of the ticket, the White House, but there's the Senate's in play. The Senate is in play, and you know, while I don't think the Democrats can get the House, the the number can be the the spread can be shrunk to such a dimension that it is effectively uh, a 50-50 place. I don't think there's any question that the Democrats are in the catbird seat with regard to the Senate with Donald Trump continuing. And if he nominates or if he picks as a, his running mate someone who is currently in the Senate, and there's some talk about Kelly Ayotte in, uh, in New Hampshire, that could potentially open up a seat, which creates even more problems for the Republican Party. I think the party is at a crossroads. They are, have relied for the longest period of time on a shrinking demographic, older, less well-educated whites. Well, that's not the future of America, and you can't continue to expect to win elections on the old playbook. And that helps explain some of the voter suppression stuff that we've seen over the course of the last few years. We can't win on ideas. Let's win, win on the rules. And, and so Donald Trump and, and the other, you know, sort of major domos within the party are about to come to a crossroads. And quite frankly, if it continues down the tracks the way it is, it's difficult to be optimistic for the party. Let's pivot a minute. Uh, 
I want to at least ask the callers, if you want to join our conversation, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. How do we get to this place? I mean, uh, if we go all the way back to the end of slavery, yes, Lincoln was uh, a Republican. And the Freedmen, Freedmen's Bureau and all of the uh, Reconstructionists uh, were Republican acts. Mm-hmm. Most African Americans supported Lincoln because he freed the slaves at that point. What happened? Well, not only because he freed the slaves, but because the Rep- Republican Party, generally speaking, was, relatively speaking, com- uh, in, in the context of that time, far more progressive on black civil rights issues. You know, it's ironic. People talk a lot about the sort of overweight support that African-Americans give to the Democrats today. Well, you could say there was even more support for Republicans during that period among African-Americans. And African-Americans are where they've always been, center, center left uh, in in the United States politics. But, But the movement has been in the parties around them with regard to certain policy issues, freedom, equality, justice, so on and so forth. So how do we get here? Well, I think a couple things happened. And, and what was baked into the cake for African-Americans supporting the Republican Party actually was a small snippet in time if you go back over the course of the last 150 or so years. So you had the Reconstruction, which, which helped literally reconstruct the American South following the Civil War. That lasted for about a decade, 12 years, depending on how you want to count it. Uh, but during that period, African-Americans began to get access to the ballot for the first time and use that access to uh, literally make significant change. And, and during the Reconstruction era, South Carolina was a majority black state. The majority, the majority of the South Carolina legislature was African-American, near majority in Mississippi, near majority in Alabama, near majority in Georgia. And so what you began to see was very progressive Reconstruction um, uh, sort of driven policies. Well, as any group would would expect, you know, you support the party that supports those policies. Well, there began to be compassion fatigue and other kinds of problems that, that ultimately moved the Republicans away from that. And as you get to Jim Crow and the creation of um, the, uh, the Jim Crow laws throughout the early 20th century, you see a switch. And I know we're about to go to break and we can talk about this kind of stuff. When we come back from the break, what I really want to get to is uh, that switch represented federalism and states' rights. Without question. And and that's where you saw the the transition in the party structure. When we come back Mm -hmm. after the break, we're going to go into that. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Sam Fullwood at the Center for American Progress. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back once more to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Sam Fullwood at the Center for American Progress. With me is my good friend Michael Fontroy, Associate Professor of Political Science at Howard University. Before we went to the break, 
uh, we were talking about the the switch that took place in the affections and the political uh, aligning leanings of African Americans uh, with the Republican Party, and and I had raised the question of federalism and states' mm-hmm. rights. Yeah, I, I want to add one more piece to that, and that sure. is the Great Migration. Great, yes. as you know, literally millions of African Americans moved from the South to places like Chicago, Detroit here in D.C., Baltimore, up and down the East Coast. And that had a significant impact on Democratic Party politics in those states. And as a result, it began to turn the ideological will. And there were all these new votes coming into these states. And Democrats found a way to sort of switch their politics into in, in an attempt to win those votes. And that had an impact on the Democratic Party across the country. And the Democratic South still conservative, but largely isolated from the rest of the country. So we, we know that federalism played a role in this regard. States began, the states began to engage in certain public policies, but those public policies were driven in large measure by this great migration of African Americans into northern and midwestern cities. It, today, is there anything that the, your studies show that the Republicans can do to win back the, uh, the the political affection, or at least even it out so that it is not, as you put it, so much overweight for the Democrats. If, if you're asking about a 50-50 kind of proposition, I, don't, I, I do not foresee a way in which that can happen. And the way to get African-American support up, uh, up around 20 percent, for example, for a Republican presidential candidate would require a, an increase in moderation in public policies that would have a negative impact on that Republican candidate among religious conservatives, for example, or social conservatives or, or racial conservatives. To so, get to 20 percent. To get to 20 percent. I mean, the, oh, George Bush got about tw- uh, the, he got Bush 11. Team. Oh, well, he got. OK, so let's go back to the 1980 campaign. Reagan got 9 percent. Uh, he got 11%. No, he got 11% in 1980. He got uh, 9% in 1984. Bush then comes up and a few years later gets about 16, 17%, somewhere yes. in there. And that's been the high water mark since then. And, you know, George H.W. Bush could not sniff the nomination of this current Republican Party. In fact, you know, I, I think it'd be hard for Richard Nixon yeah. to get the nomination in this Republican Party. So as the party goes further right, it continues to move away from African-American voters. In order to win more African-American voters, it would have to move closer to the center. And that then pushes away all of those racial conservatives okay. that are completely upset about immigration and their status oh, in the okay, country. Okay, Michael, if, all of the, if everything that you say is right, and I don't, I'm not arguing with you about your analysis, why don't Republicans see the, prob- the futility of their situation? I think the problem is the... I think the problem is in the racial conservatives and religious conservatives that have taken over the party. and So they're putting it into a death spiral. Yes. Yes, because there, there's, there's this sort of ideological purity that is now required. And as long as you are willing to be righteous and comfortable with being, you know, losing elections but, but remaining righteous, then the death spiral will continue. That doesn't explain uh, Mark Kirk, then. Well, Mark Kirk is in a different position. He's in a he's in a 50-50 state. He himself is not a sort of traditional conservative in 2016 context. And 
I think given his his sort of experience in the military and in the Senate and his own natural inclinations, he's not sort of lined up with much of what is going on in the Republican Party. Uh, and that helps explain why he came out today and said, you know what, Donald Trump's comments on this judge are, for me, a bridge too far. Yeah. And so I, I just think that, but, but, but those Republicans are few and far between. You know, Sam, they're probably a half dozen in the U.S. Senate right now that are probably sort of ideologically more moderate. You know, the party have driven out all of those folks. I mean, think about this for a second. There, there were people in this race during the 2016 campaign who had very strong conservative bona fides. John Kasich, for example. And there are people actually questioning whether or not he's a real conservative. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so if that's if that's the measure, then I, I just don't see how the party elders can move the party in a direction where it needs to be. Next year, you have a, a, a third book coming out, mm-hmm. more than just partisanship, conservatism and the black voter suppression. Uh, it raises a question in my mind. Wh- what is your fascination with <laughs> with uh, blacks and conservatives? Well, I, I um, you know, as a, as a professor, as an academician, as a scholar, one of the things you want to do is plow fields that haven't really been plowed very much. And so there's a very short line looking at conservatism and racism or racial politics, if you will. So I've been really influenced by a mentor and legendary scholar named Robert Smith, who's recently retired from San Francisco State University. He did a Ph.D. at Howard University and for years has written on racial politics. And eight, ten years ago, he came out with a book uh, that... uh, that really did explore this idea of conservatism and racism. And it gave me the idea that, you know, if you look at the history of American conservatism, and if you understand that history, then what we've seen in this recent movement toward voter suppression laws over the course of the last half dozen or so years makes perfect sense. Well, well, hold on a second. Uh, Racism and conservatism. I, as a black man, know that large numbers of black people are conservative. So when you you can't sort of lump racism and conservatism as fungible terms, or can't or, or, is that what you're doing? I, I I listen. You know, Robert Smith makes the argument that conservatism is 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 based on racism. I, I I don't I don't go that far, but I don't think that I think there've been a large number of black Republicans, but that black conservatism piece, based on the research that I've seen and, and done, is really situational. And has, is in decline depending on where you are on the age spectrum. A 40-year-old black conservative is actually more likely to be a libertarian in terms of those social issues. A 70-year-old black conservative is driven almost entirely by religion. And so as, those, as the years proceed, the conservative movement is going to have even more difficulty resonating with, with African Americans. And so for me... I'm interested in how do we address some of the problems and some of the structural impediments to African-American political process, progress and access. And for me, conservatism is at the top of the list. Are, are you uh, among a few number of uh, scholars who see it that way? Or is that the, the general consensus I, among you know, scholars? I, I don't, you know, Sam, I don't think there's a consensus, in part because I don't think there's been a lot of work done on it. Yeah. You know, and but but when you lay it out and when you look at it, 
it's you know I, I think it's it's a fairly easy argument to make. One of the things I found in, in this research is, if you look at and, and I'm putting together the the laws on voter suppression all over the country. 85% of them are have been introduced in advance in the states by conservatives. Thank you so much, Michael Fontroy, Associate Professor at Howard University. Really enjoyed this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Sam Fullwood at the Center for American Progress. With me now is uh, my colleague and friend and sometimes uh, poker donator, Benton Strong. He's the Managing Director of Communications at American Progress. And uh, before we get to the serious stuff, I, I want to hear your recollections on uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, you you never saw him fight. You, you're too young for that. Uh, but. Yeah. Um, what did he mean to you? I'm also too too young to play poker with Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Never too young. Never no, too young. You know, I spent all weekend just sort of going through, and I thought that the, the president and first lady's tribute was phenomenal. Yeah, just yeah, the, I the thought story, that was great. The story they told, that was just incredible. Um, you know, like I was an athlete and also an African American who grew up in you know a major city, and um, and, I, and I work in politics, and I understand the platform that athletics gives you. Um, that you'll never get unless you are a president of the United States in, in politics. And I think, you know, I think other... That's the power of athletics in our culture. It, it is. It's, and I think it's exactly the way you put it. The power of athletics is the, is the way to put it. The power of sports, I think, is a, is a great book that somebody wrote about. Just just the ability that you have to impact lives if in whatever way you choose. And, you know, I think there's all this conversation about, you know, was he genuine when he decided that he didn't want to go to the draft? And I, of course he was. And 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 the, the the reasoning for that is because he had a principled stand. He took it and he held onto it. And that the fact that he did that with his platform. And I even think of like I, I compare that to like Ray Charles deciding not to perform in Georgia. Right. Like the, the, the ability and the willingness to utilize that platform and recognize the role that you play. Uh, not just in society, but in the community that you came from and that you represent. I think there, there, there will never be anyone like him, and and there will never be a replacement for him, um, and there will never be an era again where somebody like him can really come into his own and actually play the role that he did. I don't think there will be a similar one at some point, but probably not again. Um, and I, I can honestly say that without, you know, King and Malcolm X, and you go down a list of people and their importance. But without a Muhammad Ali, there is not someone like me who is yeah. an African-American who was in athletics and now works in politics who does what I do. I, I, I just think that more than anybody, people like him and particularly him blaze trails. Let's uh, – well said, well said. Let's let's turn to uh, to what, what we want to talk about here in terms of politics. Today is the final round of primaries. And One more. Oh, don't, don't. The D.C. people, man. Oh, oh, gosh. Don't. Don't I, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That's where I vote. Um, but the, the big the big prize, the big prizes mm-hmm. are, are today. Give me your assessment. I mean, it, the voters are still going on, but give me your assessment. Yeah, I mean, look, the, 
AP made the historic announcement last night that Hillary Clinton has gotten to. Well, hold on, let's talk about that. You know, what, what do you think about that? Should I, they? Have, should look, they have... You're a news guy, right? I mean, if you have the story, it's the story, right? The story. And this is the this isn't the first election that we've had to deal with this issue of. Um, do we count superdelegates or not? In fact, eight years ago, we went through this process. But that is the process. Those are the rules that Bernie Sanders chose to get into. Um, and if you're the Associated Press, you are the outlet of record on this issue. Um, and they had it. And they pulled the superdelegates and they looked at the pledge delegates and they said Hillary Clinton has reached the number. Um, you know, I heard. Does that suppress the vote by them doing I, it I on, the, that, on the eve of the vote? That is not their responsibility. It's not the AP's responsibility. This is really interesting. I'm glad to hear you say that. As a political person, that's what I as a journalist would say. I do not think it's the responsibility of a news outlet to not report what is actually news. And it is news that they did a poll of superdelegates and found that with that and the pledge delegates, she got over the number. That is news. It is on the campaigns to figure out how to get their voters to still show up. I don't even know who that hurts more, to be perfectly frank, in any way. Like, do Sanders voters not show up because they think the race is over, or do they show up because they're frustrated? Do Clinton voters not show up because they think – I mean, you also are in a state that has early vote, so people, a lot of people have already voted. So I, I just don't know what – Well, it steps on her announcement, her ability to be able to make a big hoopla about uh, winning it tonight. Yeah, but th- th- – th- one news, one or other news outlet was going to make that announcement before she gave her remarks at midnight Eastern or whatever. Anyway, so I, I just I, I don't put it on the AP to 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 decide elections. Their job is to report on elections, and I think it's perfectly fine that they did it last night if that's the numbers that they got. And I think at the end of the day, if she, you know, we figured she was going to get over that number in New Jersey today anyway before we got to California, and probably several hours before the polls close and in the prime hours when people go vote. Right. So I I don't think it would have made much of a difference as far as turnout is concerned anyway. Just before we uh, came on the air, well, no, no, we got a a caller here. I want to, let me get this caller. uh, uh, Michael in the Bronx is is waiting to talk to us. Let's let's take that call. Michael, are you there? Yes, can you hear me? I I hear you, Michael. What's on your mind, man? Well, in terms of Donald Trump's racist rant, was a uh, Mexican-American judge, but I think just um, that particular judge, he has done um, racist rants, and he says that, in so many words, that he doesn't see any Mexican judges or Latinos or blacks or, I guess he has, has a problem with women judges as well, and that kind of scares me, because remember, everybody knows that the, one of the they think the stake is the Supreme Court, the balance of the Supreme Court, in which um, his fellow Republicans are still trying to hold up President Obama's um, nomination. And I'm wondering, like, are they trying to steal the election so Trump gets into office that he put into the court, and even federal courts for that matter, people that are so far right-wing, absolute racist and sexist um, males that totally disregard the law, disregard the Constitution, and make all decisions and rulings based on only Trump's principles. I see. And then when that happens, you know we're really down in deep doo-doo. Well, I think, Michael, your point is that uh, perhaps uh, Trump is trying to intimidate a judge before uh, his trial comes up, and it, does it play with some of the voters out there? It's a really good, interesting point. Uh, I think Velma, Velma is online from Nevada. Uh, let's hear her question. Velma, are you with us? Yes, 
I just I don't understand it. I've never seen anything like it. And Africans American, this man came out. I was very offended. My African American. I mean, then he with this judge and with the Muslims and with the women. I mean, is it any problem that this man does not have with every spec? I mean, everybody. He yeah. put down us all. So who can? I mean, who does he like? Doesn't even like himself. You know, it's ridiculous. Pastors, black pastors, uh, ministers, any kind of somebody that said they are follower of Jesus Christ that would support somebody. This this man is crazy. I mean, Velma, he's insane. I don't even think he can help himself. Thank you, Velma. That 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 says it all right there. But, but, but let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump. Um, I don't think I can be as passionate as, as that caller just was. Well, I think a lot of people are as passionate <laughs> yeah. as Velma is. Um, in the last segment, we talked a minute ago. Have you heard about Mark Kirk's uh, announcement? He flipped back and said he can't vote for him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you make of that? And what do you make of the, the Trump campaign at this point, particularly uh, taking into consideration what Velma had to say? Well, I think well, I think your first caller for Mark Kirk is really interesting, right? Kirk was also the first Republican to come out and say not only should the President Obama's nominee be considered and get a vote and a hearing in Congress, but then met with him. Um, and and has basically already taken attack against most of the, his caucus in in the Senate, and that's because, quite frankly, there's a lot of Democrats in Illinois and a lot of Black folk in Chicago, uh, and he knows who he needs to win in order to hold on to that seat in in November. And so, you know, I, I do think that that Mark Kirk saw the writing on the wall here. He is better off the Lindsey Graham offering Trump. Right. Then then he is pretending that he needs to hold on to conservative voters in Illinois. He's going to win them anyway uh, against his opponent there. And so that, that didn't surprise me. It only surprised me that it took him so long. I, um, but look, I, I think that the last caller's point, you know, that that statement he made about my black person in his I mean, that was shocking. Um, and even the statement that he made in in pretending to back off from his hits on this judge, uh, uh, earlier, just a couple hours ago, were not actually recognizing the reality of the situation he created, which is that not only are his comments racist, but he's in trying to intimidate a judge. Uh, and, and, and that judge, by ethics laws, can't react, cannot respond, can't say anything, can't defend himself. Uh, and Donald Trump's legal team, by the way, has not actually filed a motion for recusal to get that judge. They don't actually see it that way. Donald Trump just decided to pick on this guy. And I think if anything, if we don't is take that a strategy else, or was it just an emotional outburst? I don't know. But the thing about Donald Trump is that once he does it, he doesn't back off of it. Right. And that's the real thing about this is that is that the Republican Party is learning. I can't remember which columnist wrote it uh, this morning, but the Republican Party is learning. The man has always been racist. That's just a reality. He wasn't just trying to win the Republican primary. He is, in fact, racist. And the fact that Mitch McConnell, both on Sunday and then I just saw him about an hour and a half ago on television, continue to refuse to say that Donald Trump is making racist statements um, just tells you that, that no one is interested in stopping this guy from taking over the Republican Party and taking them down a pathway they can't afford to go But his making those statements got him the the nomination. Or the the yeah the nomination. I don't know that it was those statements that got him the nomination. Well, it didn't hurt him. And I think that's the fearful part. And I think that's what Mitch McConnell sees is that didn't hurt Donald Trump in getting the nomination. But that should put a picture of just how disastrous the Republican Party is right now, and not that the country actually stands behind Donald Trump. 
I'm talking to uh, Benton Strong, uh, and you can talk to him as well. Call us at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And we're going to be back after a short break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6LESLIE. Welcome back. Welcome back one more time. This is uh, Sam Fullwood at the Center for American Progress. With me is Benton Strong, Managing Director of Communications at American Progress. And uh, we were talking just a minute ago about racism and the Trump campaign. I have to say, I've been wrong about Trump all season because I thought that he would never, I thought he was going to be done by February or March. And the fact that he has gotten as far as he has is a real shock to me. I also believe that it is a real shock to him. Uh, I do not believe that he ever in his wildest imagination thought that he was going to get this far. And so I find everything that's happened since then almost like farce. Um, it, what I'm thinking of is that, that, that movie, The Mouse That Roared, where the, these people took over a country and was going to surrender so that they could get foreign aid. It was sort of a, a big ruse that wasn't really intended to be what it was. And that's what I think of, of this campaign. It is scaring me now that there are a lot of people that take this very, very seriously, and it could happen. You don't seem to think that way. You, you know, it's funny. I was just actually just joking downstairs before I came up here that Trump should just get out now and donate $100 million to some, <laughs> to some <laughs> list of people and just be like, it was, I'm sorry, everybody. I screwed this one up. I do think that there was a significant chunk of the campaign. And you could say this about Bernie Sanders, too, to be perfectly honest with you. The goal was not to win. The goal was to show I'm great. I'm going to talk about some things. I'm going to drag this primary into the mud. Um, and I think we're learning now that he also fully intended to drag it into this extremely conservative, anti-Mexican, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti-whatever you want to name that is not white and male um, he always wanted to do that. It was not just about winning the primary. But the thing we've learned about Donald Trump in the last few weeks, though, is that he cares about being liked, and he cares a lot about being liked, and he cares about the fact that he's never felt really liked by the people he views as his peers on Wall Street, at his level of wealth in New York City, in politics and business, you name it. And now he, he may not have wanted to get here, but now that he's here, he actually sees it as a as a sort of va- opportunity for validation. And that's horrifying because that is not why you should become president. Um, but it does seem like he feels that way. And that would explain why he sort of holds on to these positions that he has and says things like we are going to overcome on his, you know, in his uh, remarks to his surrogates. You can see that he is he is seeing the opportunity to be viewed as equal. That's a really interesting perspective. And and the conversation he had with his surrogates on the phone, where he essentially threw one of his campaign workers under the bus and said, you know, we're going to do this my way. 
it sort of lends itself to that that kind of analysis that that if he wins or if he loses, somebody's going to respect him for having run this this really bizarre campaign. Right. There's no, I mean, there's no shortage of people, particularly white men in politics, who who you know want to be the smartest person in the room. But Donald Trump has definitely taken it to the extreme in which he runs his campaign. He doesn't spend money. He says whatever he wants to say whenever he wants to say it. And his campaign is largely just about his own star. It has nothing to do with organizing or the people who he's trying to get to vote for him or, you know, if you look at his his uh, his rallies when he wins a primary state, he thanks his wife and his kids and his campaign manager. But it has nothing to do with the the people out in front of him in the audience. He's never actually talking about them. It's talking about this thing that Donald Trump built. Uh, and I, I think that's instructive for for. But in doing down. that, in doing that, in sort of playing out your your childhood angst, he's holding a party and potentially a country hostage to that yeah i mean that, that's why i say it's horrifying <laughs> and i think what's horrifying is that he didn't expect to be here right but it, i don't what i don't find shocking is that someone with such a strong personality won the republican primary i think the problem that they've actually had up to this point for the last two cycles before this one was they didn't have a very strong personality ted cruz wasn't really strong or likable right marco rubio proved that he wasn't that strong at all Jeb Bush was, quite frankly, boring and low energy, as Donald Trump said. And Donald Trump was a strong, engaging, overpowering personality that it, I think you don't I don't, don't think you should be surprised that he won the primary. I think the problem is that the people in his party will not stand up to him. Yeah, that shouldn't surprise you either, though, because they haven't stood up to the extremists in their party for half a decade at this point. We spent a lot of time talking about Donald Trump. Let's let's talk about the other side of the the. Hillary Clinton, she's going to uh, declare tonight that she is the nominee. Uh, and then from uh, from now until uh, next month or July, whenever the, uh, the Democratic uh, convention is, she'll, we'll, you'll have to put the uh, perspective name in front of her, every story about her perspective nominee. This is a historic moment. Uh, and one would think that uh, everybody would be happy, but... There's still a, a, a dark cloud hanging over the Democrats because Bernie Sanders isn't going away into the good, sweet good night. Well, it's not over yet. I mean, that's the first thing, right, is that is that not, not only is the primary season not over yet, but you do have these six states that are going to vote today. Uh, and, and even if she were to split the delegate count in all six of them, she would have a massive lead by the time this is over and be well over the number that she needs. And look, I, I think I think Bernie Sanders is surprised by being where he is, and it's hard, you know, sometimes hard to walk away. Uh, but I don't, I I don't expect Bernie Sanders to take this to the convention. I think you do not. I do not, and I think one of the big reasons for that is listen to his supporters. And I was listening to one of them today, who said, "I think that the super delegates should listen to the American people and make their decision based on that." Well, Hillary Clinton is winning by three million votes. She she's winning by more than ten percent of the people who have voted so far. So if they listen to the American people, they will vote for Hillary Clinton. And I think Bernie Sanders himself sees that. I think he sees that he has made his mark on this uh, election cycle, and he will also do that at the convention. And I, it doesn't do anything good for him to make it difficult on the Democratic Party. But the last thing I'll add to this as well is I say this every time we come on and we talk about this. More people in the Democratic Party who are Sanders voters say that they will vote for Hillary Clinton if she's the nominee than say the same thing about Trump who had voted for other candidates before. It's more than 70 percent of people who say that they will vote for Hillary Clinton who are Sanders voters. That's a good sign. I mean, she's on the right track and people need to worry less about it. 
what about uh, the wild card, President Obama? Uh, I'm seeing stories that he's chomping at the bit. I bet he is. To get out there and to campaign. He's uh, eager to go on the attack against Donald Trump. I even read one story where he was personally offended by the uh, my African-American comment. Is is President Obama uh, uh, a decider in the campaign? Yeah, I mean, excuse my bad joke here, but he's not the wild card. He's the Trump card. He is <laughs> he is more popular than both of the candidates, and that is it has been a long time since a eighth year president has been as popular as Ronald Reagan was not as popular in his this part of his eighth year as Barack Obama is. The last polls had him at fifty two percent, which is you know even himself he has been this yeah. popular in several years. And so, you know, he's not just he's not just a guy who could kind of come in and shake it up. He actually could be the, 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 the closer for Hillary Clinton. And he can go around to a lot of these communities who feel marginalized, who feel like Trump is discriminating, discriminating against them, but don't have a hopeful message in front of them. And he's that guy. And he has always been that guy. And they will have a reminder of that when he goes and talks to them and says, you should vote for Hillary Clinton. And then he'll have his warm-up act of Vice President Biden to go in right. and, and talk well, to the blue-collar communities. And Michelle Obama, who and will Michelle. go talk to many of these communities, too, is more popular than both of them. Wow, wow. Well, we got a lot more to watch for. I want to uh, thank Benton for uh, coming in and talking to us. And I'm going to thank uh, all of our guests earlier today, Melissa Botek, Michael Fontroy, and Lindsey Gibbs. I'm Sam Fullwood at the Center for American Progress. Thank you all for listening.